0: This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's
1: time for Bookings.
2: Kia ora. welcome to Bookings with Ruth Todd and Moran Rat. And I've got a great novel to talk about today, um, one by Wellington writer Sue Orr, which is getting great reviews. Oh, I love Sue Orr's work.
1: She's just um, become a real, um, well, I don't know what the word is, but she's <laughs> a, master novelist. a master novelist, that's the word. And I have a fascinating um, story of um, exile and survival and A person who came from um, Prague and uh, started off from Prague in 1968, went to England and uh, finally settled in Otago at the Otago University and is still there. Tishi, is nominated as the 11th on the list of most influential personalities among the two million Czechs living abroad. She's author of 19 novels and short stories and uh, has put so much effort into Czech literary things as well as the history and the philosophy that she worked so hard at. She's very well known and loved in both Prague and New Zealand and her family decided to stay in Dunedin when they finally came here and regular visits home, she has the best of both worlds. So welcome to the programme, Yindra.
3: Yep. Uh, uh, hello, Ruth.
1: Prague in My Bones is a memoir, and it goes really, it goes back into your heritage and your family history and the um uh, the wonderful women you had, the strong women in your um, family. Your grandmother, Anna, was um, particularly knowledge... She gave you a knowledge of literature and uh, and the men in your family were <clears throat> at universities and you became a very um, esteemed lecturer in philosophy, didn't you, in Prague?
3: Well, I was actually uh, lecturing in formal logic, I wouldn't be very esteemed if I did a lecture in Marxism-Leninism, which was sort of the other option. Yeah,
1: right. So, in the and seventeenth of November, nineteen sixty-nine, you had a rather miraculous escape to England when um, things were going wrong, and you got on the last train with your little son to meet up with your husband in England who was on a scholarship.
3: Yeah, that's correct. I mean, it was like that. Uh, I was... Uh, in The Russians came in 1968 and invaded brutally Czechoslovakia. Uh, I was a member of Communist Party at the time, and of course I was very disgusted by this uh invasion, which was against any laws. So I joined all the protest actions against the Russian invasion. I signed lots of petitions against it, and that was considered um, contra-revolutionary activities by the Czechoslovak government at that time. So I knew that I'm very likely to be sent to prison for this. Okay, and on the top of it, because I did all that, I lost my job at the university. So I was no job, no nothing. My husband in England, and it was very likely that he wouldn't be allowed to return, and we divorced this way. So I tried to escape when it was time. And the only problem was that I had my passport at home, but I needed a permission to take my son with me on that passport. And that permission the police didn't want to give me, okay? And it was by kindness of one particular person who obviously, against wishes of her superiors, gave me the... Uh, permission. It was on 17th of November, 1969, and she told me, "Hurry up! You surely you want to leave soon to be with your husband." Which I understood. Hurry up, because they were close border very soon. Because that was expected.
1: Indeed. Uh, I
3: still have to wait a bit before I could buy my ticket. I had to buy a return ticket because they required it to show that I'm intending to return. So when I managed that, there was only one train to the west in Prague. It was a midnight train. So I was sitting in that train and already the very wrong signal, I was the only one in the whole wagon, okay? So we were sort of speeding to the West German border then, and I was afraid of one thing. I was taking all my certificates with me, my university diplomas, my marriage certificate, my birth certificate, because I knew if we want to find a job in the West, we will need those papers. Yet the police at the time, told you what you can take with you if you are going for a short trip to the West. You could take your sanitary needs and clothes, only one sort of different clothes for every day of your leave. I was going for a fortnight, according to the police. And it was absolutely prohibited to take any documents they would consider it a proof that I am not coming back. So I have a dilemma. Either I take the papers and risk that they will send me back and to prison from the border, or I won't take anything and I come to the West and will have a big problem. That's so nice. I was sort of considering it, discussing it, and then I decided, okay, I take the papers And I knew it was absolutely no point to try to hide it because the police knew all the possibilities how you could hide it. So I put it in the suitcase of my son, and I knew, knew that either the people on the border will be lenient, they would understand that I want to leave and let me go, or there will be hardliners, they would search me thoroughly and send me back. So this was a gamble. So in that few minutes before we reached the borders, I told myself, if I manage to cross, I will write a book about it. And, and guess what? The two two policemen came, two sort of uh, custom officers. They look at my luggage, and I was also taking some blankets, which I was not allowed to take. And they immediately knew that I'm not going to come back. And they made the wonderful choice. They said, yeah, okay, it, it's all fine. Good luck and goodbye. And they let me <laughs> across the border. Yes. So I am here. <laughs> in and living, yes. And I wrote my story.
1: Thank you for writing it. You spent a couple of years in England, and I'm not going to go into that detail, but what really impressed me in your book was the way you wrote about how difficult it was to leave your home country, and then after a couple of years in England, to leave England to come to to a job in Dunedin, your husband had gained, um, and all that happened in that time. And then when you were looking ahead, to going to England, well, not going to England, going from England to New Zealand, which you knew nothing about, um, you know, how it was so hard to leave England because you'd met so many people. And it's the leaving people and then having to make a huge effort to reestablish yourself when you get to the next place. That's what's come through very clearly. Is that how you felt?
3: Yeah, it was very, very painful lose those English friends. And you know, to leave your home country, Czechoslovakia, your friends, your family, your language is one of the hardest things in life. You never quite recover from it, okay? But I must say one good decision I, I made in my life and that was to come to New Zealand. The New Zealand is a wonderful country with kind people, and it's certainly the best country in the world, and it supported me. But I want to correct you. I did know something about New Zealand. Guess how? When I was eight years old, (laughs) my father gave me, to the birthday, two books by Gilles Verne, which we loved both, my father and I. One was a book which was called Two Years of Holidays, and it's about a group of boys from Auckland Grammar School, okay? So I already knew that there is place like Auckland with grammar school and, uh, on the coast of New Zealand. And the other book was The Children of Captain Grant. And in that book, Vern takes you to New Zealand during the Maori Wars. So I knew about Maori. I knew about the strife between them and Pakehas. Um, so I, I sort of knew in background about New Zealand from eight years of my eight years of life. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you for that, and I should have remembered that because that comes into the uh, memoir. This is an amazing book, Prague in My Bones, a memoir, and it's written by Iendra Tiche and. I've we've just touched on the, like an iceberg, there's so much more in this book to talk about. And um, you've been an amazing woman. And I'm glad that you have written this um, because, you know, time's getting on and, as you say, you're getting older. But you're still there in Dunedin and you still get home to Yugoslavia. Well, you did to um, the COVID. Uh,
3: Czechoslovakia.
1: Yeah. Y- yes, Czechoslovakia. So thank you very much, Jindra. And it's a must read for people who are interested in European history and literature Um, Russian literature you were good at so thank you I'm going to treasure it
3: Well thank you very much you really flatter me I'm just an ordinary woman who had a very interesting life as Chinese call it and there is this Chinese proverb, God save us from having interesting life
1: (laughs) Thank you and the book is published by Quentin Wilson Publishing You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.
2: Sue Orr's first novel, The Party Line, was one of my favourite novels of all time, especially as it depicted a New Zealand that I was familiar with. Her second novel, Loop Tracks, has already received great acclaim. Sue is the author of two short story collections. She's been a Buddle Finlay Fellow. She teaches creative writing at the International Institute of Modern Letters at Victoria University of Wellington and has a PhD and an MA in creative writing from that university. But she's also been very involved in um, teaching creative writing to women's refuges and out at prisons. So Loop Track starts in 1978 with a very um a very poignant chapter, or part as you call them. A young girl is sitting on a flight to Australia to have an abortion. And In some strange impulse, but not strange because of the way you've written it, she gets off that plane and the rest of the story evolves from that pivotal decision she makes. Yeah. So starting it there, was that really where you started the novel in your head?
0: Yes, it was, because um, that... That thing actually happened. Um, it happened on a flight that a friend of mine was on uh, and my friend told me about it. She was also on the plane for the same reason. Um, she did not get off, but uh, so the actual incident happened and my friend shared it with me. Um, probably about five or six years ago, she told me this story about the huge delay on the tarmac at Auckland Airport. And as she was telling me, my mind just immediately clicked into gear. Um, oh, what a great premise for a novel! Um, and so I talked to her about that, about my idea about using it as a launching uh, as a launching place for a fictional story. And I had her blessing to do that. So that's where it came from. Um, quite quite some years ago now. <laughs>
2: I wasn't sure where where in the interview to talk to you about the actual title loop tracks <laughs> because um, it's it's such a it's such a important um, part of the story. The way that you've structured it, um, I was first aware of musicians making loop tracks when an Australian mu- musician put together. Um, loop tracks of the sounds of the Australian bush, which he made. And at the end, you had this extraordinary soundscape of everything happening. And so um, I was drawn back to that memory as, as your story evolves, because you have, you've taken all these elements of so many things and built them up into this wonderful, rich, you couldn't call it a soundscape, it's a landscape or a mindscape. So, yeah, tell me about that process.
0: Okay, so um, I always start writing when I've got a strong character or even maybe two or three characters in my mind. And um, so with loop tracks, my characters, you know, are looping back on the past, but they're moving forward as well, um, into the future, and so um, we have a we have um, a secondary main character, Tommy, who is on the spectrum, and really struggles to make sense of the world. And um, he lives he lives with Charlie, um, the main the main character in the book, his grandmother, and he goes out on to his first music concert, and it's a loop. It's a loop track musician, um, performing and it opens his world up for him because of the layers that are going on um when somebody does looping with music. And it was at that point of the novel when he comes home from the very first outing into a crowded pub and his grandmother is very nervous about this night out for him. Um and he's euphoric with with understanding the way the music had been layered, and it was at that point of the novel, I think, as I was writing, that the looping idea fell into place as a motif for lots of other things going on in the story. Um, Another another aspect of it was um, uh, Charlie's looping life and the way the loops of her um, favourite toy as a child, the spirograph, are looping around but never land quite in the same place and to me it became, uh, it, it, it helped me um, think about her in terms of having another go at life, having second chances and making sure you don't always land back in the same place. Um, that, that change is possible, that you can nudge those looping tracks off course and and perhaps hope for a different outcome for your happiness.
2: Yeah, it's it, you have as many reviewers have said, and of course it's it's obvious when you read the book. You've you have pulled so many things into this book, <laughs> things as the sort of loose word because yes, we have the abortion um, situation in nineteen seventy eight, which was dire for young women back then. Then um, there's Tommy's autism, there's um, his father coming back into his life and the damage that was done to him at some stage, the damage that he's done to others. Mm -hmm. There's um, uh, Charlie's interest in linguistics, her own sort of linguistic problems of, um, of being her disfluency, which is a wonderful word. Um and then and then you you've you've got it set just as COVID is taking hold, and they are plunged into um into lockdown so yes. you really didn't shy away from all the <laughs> all these complicated um spirals and and forces.
0: No, well, once I was locked into them, that was it really. And uh, you mentioned COVID coming along. So I'd actually written, established the first half of, or a third of the book really, with a fictional story. And then COVID came along when I was actually literally writing the last part of, or the second half of the book. And COVID was a gift to me because during lockdown, when we couldn't do anything else, I wrote. Second half of the book is written literally and truthfully against our level four lockdown. So I was actually writing every day, stopping at one o'clock to hear what the one o'clock numbers were, hearing what our politicians and our health professionals had to say to us each day, and that's all. That all became part of the book, um, and also the political, political. Um, Landscape that we were living in at the time, as well, with the general election delayed because of COVID. um, All the all all the political um, dialogues and quotes in the book are real; they're verbatim from what we actually lived through. So, COVID was just a glorious gift (laughs) to me as a writer, Um, and it was a very productive time in writing, and I felt energised by the landscape that had been gifted to me to finish
2: the book. It's interesting, isn't it, because often we wait a while before, not we, I don't know who we is, it's not me, um, yeah. writers, <laughs> wait yeah. a while with earthquakes and the terrible mosque killings and there's a bit of a delay before they start appearing in our literature, but somehow you putting COVID in there and it's so fresh and immediate, it all made sense. I didn't feel that you were plunging me back into something that I'd rather forget. I really enjoyed reliving it in a sense
0: oh i'm pleased to hear that i mean the thing was for me my characters were alive in the world when covid came along and this is the thing that i thought about a lot is that the day we went into level four lockdown it's not as though anybody hit a reset button and wiped away what was going on in their lives already i mean we all moved into level four lockdown with our own dramas, our own, our own personal lives were in play, and none of that stopped just before just because lockdown came along, and that's what was so great when I was writing. It was exciting when I was writing because I had three or four four characters really already undergoing some big trauma in their lives or some big challenges, and lockdown came along, and I threw the you know it was just a matter of throwing those characters against the. the a, a canvas of lockdown, and thinking, right, well, you're still carrying into lockdown whatever you had going on in your life. Um, let's see what lockdown does to you. So we had bubbles. We had all of a sudden characters who were not supposed to be seeing each other anymore. We had rule-breaking and rule-obeying. It was really energising for me as a writer to have this glorious canvas to to um, paint my existing characters and their existing... Situations onto
2: And also um, You had no idea I was going to pan out So at a certain stage You (laughs) had to say the story I'm ending the story now
0: That's right At first I wondered whether um, I might end it at the end of lockdown But I had always thought That the story might finish um, Around the time of the general election So I did carry it through to there
2: well, you've done an extraordinary job, Sue, so, and I have to say this is going to be another of my favorite New Zealand novels. <laughs> oh thank you. It's,
0: yeah. it's lovely to hear. <laughs> yeah.
2: The book is called Loop Tracks. It's by Sue Orr and it's published by Victoria University Press. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.